right, so some of you might have been thinking that Steve Mosier was teaching tonight. However, <laughs> he texted me and said, I will be out of town. Can you teach for me? And I said, yes, yeah, sure. So here I am. Um, and tonight I get the privilege of breaking the word of life open with you guys and uh, continuing the worship service. Um, I know it's easy for us to think when the music's over that worship is over, but that's not true. Uh, we are continuing the worship service as we open up the bread of life today. So um, my primary goal tonight is to lay a foundation. Um, it's not to get too far into the seven churches because that will be unveiled, if you will, each week from starting tonight. So I think uh, Brother Lonis will have Ephesians next week, which will be the the first church that uh, John talks about, and so and and so forth. So, but tonight I just want to lay an overview. And um, if you got your notes with you, I'll be going through those. If you can, some of you have a pen in front of you in the pews there, and that might be helpful for you to write some notes down. Um, before we start, though, I want to um, pray, and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you tonight for your blessings, and thank you, Lord, for this time that we have as the ecclesia, the, the called out ones, the, the congregation of God, to sit here together uh, to hear your word being spoken and read aloud. God, we just pray that you will be here in a special way. You said when two or three are gathered, your spirit, your presence, your power was would be there in the midst. And we want to feel that presence here with us today. And God, we just ask that you will um, anoint the speaker and anoint the hearers, O oh God, so that I can say what needs to be said and that the hearers can hear what needs to be said. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So, if you look at your notes, I want to begin talking about the book of Revelation as the genre of apocalypse. Um, now, a genre, I give you the definition there, is simply a category of literature that has a similar form, style, or subject matter. So many of you know genres. There's genre of fiction. There's genre of nonfiction and biography and different, different forms of literature. Revelation falls into a category of literature called the apocalypse. Now, the apocalypse comes from a Greek word, um, that simply means an unveiling. Uh, apocalypsis is the Greek, but it means to unveil or to reveal. Revelation is not the only book in the genre of apocalypse. So I give you a list of, it's not an exhaustive list, but there are a few books there that you might recognize. The book of Enoch, for example, if you've ever read that, is an apocalypse. Second Baruch, which is an apocryphal book. Um, so if any of you read any of the apocryphal books, Baruch is one of those. Fourth, Ezra. Yes, there are four of them. <laughs> Only one of them in our Bible that's authoritative, but there are four of them. The book of Jubilees is considered to be apocryphal. Uh, Shepherd of Hermas is a book that was very popular in the um, first century. Uh, it just didn't make the cut. Um, some of the early Christian fathers felt like the Shepherd of Hermas was written a little bit later than some of the Gospels and the other books of the Bible. Therefore, it was too late 
to get into the canon of Scripture. Uh, even though it was popular, you know, like we have popular books today, T.D. Jakes and, I don't know, all the other ones, uh, there were popular books back then, and Shepherd of Hermas was one of those. And also there's an Apocalypse of Peter, which I would recommend everybody read. Um, it is uh, one of these fascinating books where uh, people get punished based off the sin that they do. And there's some really wild stuff in there. But um, if you have the time to read the Apocalypse of Peter, you can, you can look it up on Google and find it. Now, one of the most famous apocalypses is the book of Daniel. And there are a lot of parallels between Revelation and Daniel. So I give you a little space on there to write the word Daniel in there. Um, and you'll see a lot of those parallels. I'll try to bring some of them out tonight in, in the teaching. Uh, now, one of the things that's interesting about Revelation is that it never directly quotes anything out of the Old Testament. But it makes tons of references to the Old Testament. <laughs> So there's not ever an exact quote, word-for-word quote, from an author like Ezekiel, Daniel, or Zechariah, but the Revelation alludes to all of those different uh, books. Now, if you look in, on your notes, um, other, uh, other apocalypses, there are portions of Isaiah that are, are considered apocalyptic, uh, parts of Ezekiel, parts of Zechariah. And then we all know about Mark, Matthew, Luke, all of those chapters that talk about the end of the world. Those are considered apocalyptic. And then 2 Thessalonians and 2 Peter. So when we talk about the apocalypse or the apocalyptic genre, we're talking about a, a large group of literature. Now, what are the characteristics that make up an apocalypse? One of the things that you'll find if you, if you read the apocalyptic literature is that more likely than not, there are going to be angels. And often an angel will be guiding or leading the person through a vision. So you see angels in the book of Daniel. What angels do we see in Daniel? Two of the most famous ones, or yeah, two of the most famous. Gabriel, Michael, right? So we don't get, I don't believe we get any named angels in the book of Revelation, do we? Michael. I think Michael is named, but I don't know if Gabriel's named. But we get angels in the book of Revelation, and they lead John through the vision. There's also symbolism, an incredible use of symbolism and color and imagery. And there are composite creatures. So the book of Daniel has these composite creatures, you know, leopards that have teeth like a lion, and they've got Paul's like a bear, and, you know, these kinds of things. And then in the book of Revelation, we have similar composite creatures, you know, dragons with seven heads and ten horns and these kinds of things. These are all kind of that fall into the apocalyptic. We also have uh, cosmic catastrophes, end of the world. If it's not talking about the end of the world, then it's probably not an apocalypse. This is one of the things that is characteristic of the apocalyptic literature. And finally, there's dualism. You'll always notice in apocalyptic literature, there is the war between the good and the war between the evil. There's, there's God and there's the devil. There are uh, the angels and the demons, you know, the fallen ones. And then there is light and darkness, but there is no gray. 
You know, everything's one or the other in the apocalyptic literature. So those are kind of the characteristics. So if you're reading through, um, you know, for example, Matthew, if you read Matthew 24 and chapter 25, it talks about the angels coming to gather up the people and then Jesus will separate the sheep and the goats. So there we get the angels and it's the end of the world, you know, the judgment. So all these things are uh, part of the apocalyptic literature. So I wanted to just lay that foundation that, that Revelation is not just a single book by itself, but that it's a, it, is, it shares with other books sim- similarities. However, Revelation distinguishes itself not only as a book of apocalyptic literature, but it's also a prophecy. So look at Revelation with me in chapter 1. And we're only looking at chapter 1 tonight. And you'll have to forgive me. Some of you might be like math science people. I was like a literature person. <laughs> so, so that's just how it, how it happened. Okay, so if you look at Revelation um, chapter 1, Uh, and look at verse 3. What does it say? Blessed is he, or she, who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. So John himself is calling what this vision is a prophecy. So he's, he's um, saying it's more than just a vision, but it's also a prophetic word for the church. That it, that it has meat to it. It's more than just a vision of the future or a vision of the end of the world. Now, if you look also in Revelation 22, sorry, I said we would just look at chapter 1, but go, go to chapter 22 as well. That's the end. 22 verse 7, he reiterates it. Now, the chapter 1 we call the prologue, the chapter 22 we call the epilogue or the ending. And so in the epilogue, in chapter 22, verse 7, it says, Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy. So according to John, this is not just a uh, book of the end of of the world and end of times, but it's also a prophetic book. In other words, we need to pay attention to the words. The church needs to pay attention because it is... um, a message that is ageless. It's a message that is timeless, and we all need to hear what the, what the book says or has to say. Finally, um, Revelation in the New Testament is what the Psalms is to the Old Testament. Um, the book of Revelation is the hymn book of the New Testament. There are more hymns in the book of Revelation than all the other New Testament books combined, and I give you the list of them there. In chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 7, 11, 12, 15, 16, and 19. All of those chapters include early Christian hymns. Um, Let's look at one in um, chapter 4, verse 8. A lot of people will recognize this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That is, it's a small hymn, but that's a hymn nonetheless. Verse 11, 
Worthy art thou, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things, and by thy will they were created, they existed and were created. So these are, we don't have the music to those, so we don't know how it sounded. We don't know if it was in the key of E flat or the key of G, you know, but they are words of hymns. They are hymns to God, songs. And we see a lot of worship in the book of Revelation. In fact, um, it is kind of like an entire worship scene, if you will. And we start that worship scene in chapter 4, where the elders and the four beasts cast their crown at the feet of the one who sits on the throne. He's never named. It doesn't say God but it says the one who sits on the throne. And we know, of course, that's God Almighty. Um, so, so we see that this is a book of worship. Um, so if we see so much worship in the book, let me try to make this point. I think it's uh, the tribulation, the end of the world, that stuff sells, and it sells really well. <laughs> And I'm not throwing that whole group under the bus. I'm just saying there's some good to that. But I am saying that a lot of it can be sensationalized. Why, why do we focus so much on that when we also know that this is a book of worship? Why can't we focus on that a little more? You know what I'm saying? Like, maybe God wants us to go there. So finally, I keep saying finally, the next thing I want to look at is the twofold purpose of the letter. And the first purpose of the letter is um, that it is considered to be a circular, it was intended to be a circular letter to the churches of Asia. So, for example, the, um, someone would take the book and take it to each of the individual churches and read the book so that each of the seven churches would hear the book read aloud. So its purpose was to be a circular letter to the churches. Um, an example of this, if you want to turn in Col uh, Colossians with me. I think I give you that in the notes. Yeah, Colossians 4.16. So Paul wrote this book of Colossians, and he meant it to go to the people of Colossae, to the, the book, to whom the book, the letter was written. But look at verse 16 of chapter 4. It says, and when this letter, the letter of the Colossians, has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and see to it that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So here we see a book that's not in the Bible. The book, the letter to the Laodiceans. Um, now, the argument there is God didn't want us to have it, so it's not in the Bible. Well, that's true. <laughs> it's not there. However, I would love to read it. If somebody could find it, you know, like the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were, they were gone for thousands of years, and then we found those. So maybe... Maybe it's in somebody's drawer somewhere, you know, and they'll pull it out and say, look, it's, here it is. No, it won't be that easy. But I would like, and, and there have been um, fakes, like 
there is a letter of, of the Laodiceans, but it, it's not the real thing. It's, it was like written by somebody and not the real original. Okay, but do you see the point here that this letter of Colossians was a circular letter? It was supposed to be read in the churches of Colossae, but it was also to be read in other churches in other areas. So that's similar to the book of Revelation. And then the second purpose to the, church, to the book is to bring comfort to those who are suffering persecution. So if you look at verse um, 9 in, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. Here we see that John was suffering persecution for his belief in Jesus. Just like we looked last week and we saw that Paul said, for you it has been granted to suffer for Christ's sake, to suffer persecution. It's like a gift. It's similar, to, similar here that John was suffering persecution for his belief. And that with that persecution comes the identity that he's a Christian. So, on page two of your notes, the historical setting of the book was written around um, 90 AD. Some scholars date it a little bit later, uh, but around 90 AD is when uh, most scholars date the book. So we know it was very, it was the oldest book. There's nothing later than 90. Everything else was written before that. All the Gospels of Paul, or all the letters of Paul were written in the 50s and 60s AD, and then the Gospels were actually written after Paul's writings. So Paul wrote first, even though they're not first in the book of the New Testament, but Paul wrote, and then the Gospels were written around 70, 75 AD, and then, um, then finally we get the uh, book of Revelation, which was written around 90. So this is a it's an ancient book, but it's the latest, the last book to be written. Now, who is John? There's different theories about who this John is that wrote the gospel the, or the book of Revelation. And one of the theories I think that I grew up with was he's the same guy that wrote John, the gospel of John. So he's, and that guy was the same guy that wrote first, second, third John, <laughs> that Anything that was named John in here was the same guy, right? But that's not necessarily the case. And um, we know, for example, that 2nd and 3rd John were actually written by somebody named John the Elder. So there was the first theory is that the book of Revelation was written by John the Apostle. Even though one of the arguments against that is he doesn't identify himself as an apostle. Now, remember what Paul does? I, Paul, the apostle, write to you, you know, this. But John doesn't do that. He says in verse 4, John, to the seven churches, grace and peace to you. He, he never identifies himself as the apostle. So it, you know, that's one theory. The second theory is that it could have been John the Elder, this guy that was Second uh, John and Third John you look there, it says the elder to the elect lady and her children. And then in 3 John, it's the elder to the beloved Gaius. So 
Possibly the elder wrote this, but once again, he, John doesn't identify himself as the elder either. And then finally, there's kind of a newer theory. I don't know if it's new necessarily, but it's the idea that John is the prophet, <laughs> which is what he calls himself. He says that he is writing this prophecy, and then um, in the last chapter, he is identified with the school or group of prophets, um, which apparently he is a part of this prophetic group in uh, the churches in Asia. So it may be best just to leave it there that we don't know exactly who the author is, but it is a guy named John, and um, he is a part of a prophetic community. So we'll just call him John the prophet. That's what I'll call him. Now, finally, there I go again, finally, (laughs) two major church figures Uh, Martin Luther. Now, I'm not talking about Martin Luther King Jr. That was a guy named after Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a a Catholic priest that lived in the 1500s, and people say he's famous for starting the Protestant Reformation, but he did not think highly of the book of Revelation, and I give you the quote. He says, my spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. That sounds very stuffy, doesn't it? But um, Luther didn't like it because of its liturgical similarities. That means it's uh, worship. All the worship in it, it sounded too Catholic to him. It was, he was a Catholic. And so, so for him to call the book of Revelation too Catholic uh, means that there may be something there. So for him, it, rep, it looked too much like a Roman Catholic mass. And so he, he just dismissed it out of hand. Mark, Martin Luther also did not like the book of James. So he... He never wrote he he never wrote a uh, commentary on James or Revelation, and the same with Calvin. Calvin was a French uh, theologian who um, really influenced our current Baptist movement. If you know the the Baptists, they are really influenced by Calvin today. And Calvin never wrote a book a commentary on Revelation either. And I tried to do some research as to why, but I couldn't find out why he didn't write a commentary. The research that I did just said that either he didn't get around to it or he just didn't understand what the book meant. Therefore, he didn't ever attempt to write a commentary on it. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Another um, kind of popular um, use of the book of Revelation was by Charles Manson. And so many of you might know him (laughs) or have heard of him. Um, He thought that... The four horsemen, the four riders of the apocalypse, were the Beatles, like John and all those different Beatles. So anyway, in some of the Beatles music, there were apocalyptic, what he can, what Charles Manson interpreted in his, you know, brilliant mind, that, oh, this is a sign that the end is coming, and the Beatles are kind of prophesying the end. Therefore, he had like seven people murdered in San San Francisco or something, somewhere in California. And, of course, we know that he went to jail, and he I think he died recently, like in the last year or two. But that's a, like a, a sample of a misuse of the, of the Bible. <laughs> um, and, but it was a real thing. And, and maybe even more recently, we know that um, 
David Koresh, if, if you remember that name, uh, Waco, Texas. He also thought that he was the Messiah, and he taught a lot out of the book of Revelation and misused it. And so it can often be misused and abused. So we need to get um, solid teaching when we're talking about the book of Revelation because it can get a little far afield, if you will. So, so if Luther and Calvin had a hard time understanding it, we probably will too. However, that's, the, that's kind of where I want to get with this book is that you, you, won't, you may not be able to understand it in the natural. Like, this is a supernatural book, right? So we need God to help us understand it. We can't just um, open up, you know, this book and say, oh, I'm just going to read it like a piece of literature. I mean, I guess you could, but you won't get much out of it. You have to pray and say, God, I'm about to read this. Please open this up to me. Teach me what you want me to see in this book. Now, no matter what else is said about the book of Revelation, it is deeply Jewish. It is Hebraic to its core. Um, John himself, whoever this prophet was, um, had a Jewish background. We know this because the, the book itself has strong Jewish imagery. For example, the sacrificial lamb. The lamb didn't come out of nothing. It came out of this imagery of the Old Testament of the sacrificial lamb. And if you don't know about the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the reference to the lamb in the book of John and the book of Revelation won't make a lot of sense to you. When we see the lamb that was slain, we realize that this was the sacrifice for our sins, just as the lamb was a sacrifice for the sins to atone um, for the Jews. The same about the reoccurring number seven. We get a lot of sevens. Seven is not just a lucky number. <laughs> it is the number of God. Um, and um, it's kind of how I like to think of it. I don't know if this is exactly right, but a lot of us think in the number 10, so 10, 20, 30, 40. And when we learn in elementary school, we learn about base 10, like things are in our minds are in tens, but in the Hebrew culture, things were in sevens. So everything was like a multiple of seven. And seven is a number of holiness or sacredness. And I have the menorah here with me tonight. It's a seven-branch candlestick. There's a reason for it being seven branches. Because the, the book of Revelation in chapter 1 talks about Jesus being in the midst of the candlesticks. Well, if you didn't know anything about the Old Testament menorah, you wouldn't know that that's what he was standing in the midst of, the seven-branch candlestick. It talks about the Jewish bride. There's a lot about, I'm, let me go through all these. The 12 tribes of Israel would be restored. That's, a, that's an Old Testament idea. The temple is found in the book. Um, they sing the song of Moses in Revelation chapter 15, verse 3. The priesthood is talked about. Um, that is in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. And God made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. So, and then finally, we'll, we'll talk about the trumpet a little bit, but whenever it says a trumpet, we're not talking about a brass instrument with three valves in the middle. We're talking about the shofar. And 
So when he says, I heard the trumpet, we're not hearing a bugle. We're hearing a shofar blast. So it's these kinds of images in ancient Hebrew culture that are infused in this book that if we miss those images, we won't understand fully the book of Revelation. However, there are some clearly Christian elements, such as the Trinity. If you look at uh, chapter 1 and verses 4 and 5, it says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Who is that? Well, Jesus and God. And then the next person we see is from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That's the Holy Spirit. And then finally, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is a Trinitarian formula here. Um, it's very, the Trinitarian formula is very clear in the last um, uh, chapter of Matthew that says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Remember there, it's not baptize them in the names of, but baptize them in the name of. Therefore, the writer was saying that this is, we're talking about one person here. And Revelation also gives this very clear that there's the one who is and is to come. He's not named as God there. And then the seven spirits, who is the Holy Spirit. And then finally, Jesus Christ, who is the uh, firstborn of the dead. This is a clear reference to the Trinity. We also get references to congregations and churches, and, and we'll talk about that here in a second, uh, where we talk about the seven churches. We Church is also one of those uh, churchy words. <laughs> when I say to my wife or kids, we're going to church, we mean that we're coming to this building. However, it would be better for me to say I'm meeting with the congregation. Because that's really what I'm doing. We are a congregation. In other words, we're the, we're the called out ones, and it's not this building that makes the church. So it'd be better to use that term instead of church itself because we equate church too strongly with a building. And then finally, the book was written in Greek to a Greek audience. So even though it was written in Greek, it still has a lot of Hebrew overtones. All right. Now, the structure of the book itself, the entire book is structured around four sections, and those four sections start the, the first blank you see in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. And it says here, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Okay, so let's look at chapter 4 and verse 2 and see what similarities there are. Chapter 4, verse 2 says, At once I was in the Spirit. Seeing a pattern. In chapter 17 and verse 3, And he carried me away in the Spirit. And then finally, chapter 21. Uh, let's see. Let me see if I got that written down. 21 and verse 10. And in the Spirit, he carried me away. 
Notice the, the repetition there. What was he in? The Spirit. Each time I was in the Spirit is mentioned, it starts a new section of the book. So in chapter 1, verse 10, it starts the section that is between chapter 10, verse 1, chap, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 10, and chapter 4, verse 2. And everything in between those two chapters or two, two verses is chapter 2 and 3, which talks about the seven churches. Then chapter 4, verse 2 to chapter 17 is about the seven seals the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. When you get to chapter 17 and verse 3, you get to the, the whore of Babylon. And you talk about the, that she is a reference to a city. And she's called the whore of Babylon. And then in contrast to that, in chapter 21 and verse 10, we start to learn about another woman who is the bride of Christ and who is a city who comes down out of God from heaven. So do you see how Babylon the whore is contrasted to the bride of Christ and is the city? They're both cities, according to the book of Revelation. But one of them is a whore, and one of them is pure. <laughs> that rhymed. Okay, so, um, so write those four things down. Um, Revelation 1.10, Revelation 4.2, Revelation 17.3, and Revelation 21.10. Now, I, I don't think I need to say this, but I think Pentecostals understand being in the Spirit. Just a thing. When John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, I kind of know what that's been like <laughs> to be in the Spirit. And it's, it's pretty amazing. And so what happens when you're in the Spirit? Sometimes you have visions. Sometimes you have a revelation. What does Paul say? I was in the spirit. Maybe I was in the third heaven, and I had this vision. Remember that from 2 Corinthians chapter 12? It's, it just so happens that when you're in the spirit, you're in the right frame of mind to receive from God. And this is what's going on with, with John the Revelator. So I want to break down the book a little bit into its different parts. The very first chapter, first verse through the third verse, is what we call a prologue. The next part, 4 through 9, is just more of the prologue. And then in chapter 1, verse 10, we see the first, what I call, literary marker. It's the marker that indicates something's about to change. Then in Revelation verses 9 through 20, we get the revelation of Jesus Christ himself, which is, it's interesting that the climax of the book is Jesus himself, and it's given in the first chapter. <laughs> Usually the climax of a book is, is to the end. Well, and it kind of is. But you'll see that the book has this cycle of rising and falling action, and it's very, very cyclical. So there's multiple times when Jesus comes back in the book of Revelation that, that we'll see as we study it. Um, and then finally, finally again, letters to the seven churches, and then the second literary marker is in chapter 4, verse 2. Now I want to go over the theories of the seven letters to the seven churches. The first theory... Uh, is... Let me look at those... Um, 
look at chapter 1, verse 11. It says, write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, if Jesus was an elementary school teacher, those would be in alphabetical order. But they're not. <laughs> he was a teacher, though. I don't know what kind of order they are, but you did get the maps, right? So you'll notice the different um, areas are, they're pretty much on the coast. Now, you might, in your elementary and high school days, you might have had geography, and you might have learned that this country is called Turkey. It is a Muslim country. It's currently Muslim, but at the time that the book of Revelation was written, it was mostly pagan but turning Christian. And so um, this is what they call Asia Minor. When, when I grew up in school, Asia was China, you know, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos. All of that was considered Asia, Japan, Korea. However, you got to get in your mind, this was considered Asia. Turkey was considered Asia in the Bible. So when Paul says, I went to Asia, he's not saying he went to China. He's saying he went to Turkey. Okay? You'll also notice that um, what I found to be cool is that the very first two churches mentioned is Ephesus and Smyrna. Those were mentioned because, if you notice, they're the two um, cities that are on the extremity of the coast of Turkey. And they were... Um, Harbor towns. They had a harbor, which means if you had harbor, you had ships. If you had ships, you had merchants. And if you had merchants, you had money. So these were very wealthy cities, Smyrna and um, Ephesus. And I think that's why they may have been mentioned first, because they were the biggest and the most wealthiest. So the very first theory to the seven churches is that there's the historical approach. The historical approach says that John received the message from Jesus through, this, through, the, through an angel, apparently. Um, it does say by sending his angel in verse 1. Um, God sent the message, and that this message to the seven churches is just for those historical seven churches. And when the church of Ephesus, when the last elder or the last pillar of that church passes away, that that's the end of Ephesus, and that that church is historically no longer there, and that, the, that that letter was just to that church. Does that make sense? It's, a, it's historical to that church itself. When that church passes away, the letter no longer has meaning for any of us today. I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm just saying that's the historical theory. So um, the second theory is the idealist approach that treats the letter to the churches as generic advice to um, seven types of churches that might be found in any age. So maybe it's just generic advice for us today. And then finally, there's a futuristic theory that says that the letters represent Christ's description of what, at the time, were still future eras of church history. So... Maybe, maybe all these letters are just for something down in the future, and they're not really for us today. 
And then Schofield, back in the 19, early 1900s, anybody have a Schofield Bible? I've got one. Um, he's, Schofield wrote these notes. That's why he's popular. It's his notes that made him so popular. But anyway, he, he wrote notes in the Bible. And this is what he says. He says that Ephesus represents the faithful church in the apostolic age. Do you see that on the page four? Smyrna represents the persecuted church in the post-apostolic age. Pergamum represents the worldly church in the Constantinian era, when Constantine was the emperor. Thyatira represents the corrupt church, which was the medieval church, and the popes and the bishops and all that. And then Sardis represents the Reformation church, during the 15 and 1600s, Philadelphia represents the early American church. And then finally, Laodicea is today's modern church. And that kind of the idea here is that the letter, if you read the letter to Laodicea in the book of Revelation chapter 3, that its message is directly to all of the churches that are existing today. You know, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, whatever. And so... That's kind of the, that's Schofield's theory. What I personally believe is that the Bible, the message is ageless, that the message was for the people during that time, but it's also just as relevant for us at our time. And I also feel like all of the, all of the letters are to me, <laughs> even though there were to seven different churches. That's advice, and it's messages to me, for me to, to sit up and pay attention to. So when we're reading um, Revelation chapter 1, let's look at that really quick. That, that concludes the, um, the overview of the book, and I want to get into chapter 1 with the remaining time that we have. <clears throat> Turn the page here. Okay. So... Let's look at Revelation chapter 1. Uh, first, before I go on, are there any questions about the overview? Or do you want to add anything? Sometimes you've got stuff that I didn't cover and needs to be said. Earlier, I was talking about authors. Get over here first. I'll call Pat for the does that not to some degree clear up which John that is we know it was pretty well commonly understood that was Apostle John that that was on the Isle of Patmos for And, and uh, this is not a Bible tradition, uh, has thought that when he escaped Patmos, he, along with Mary and others, uh, when Jesus was on the cross, said, Woman, behold thy son. He was talking to John. And, and that 
disciple took her home, it says, took her in his care from that time forward. You know, if if you take tours over there in that part of the country, you can go to the tomb of John. So, uh, now, I, I, I'm a mathematics guy. I'm not a literary guy. <laughs> but, but to me, when, when it talks about I was on the Isle of Patmos, and with with the history that we, I, I mean that that is history. Yeah. To me, that clears it up. To me, John the Apostle John wrote this book. <laughs> yes, sir. All right, we got one for John the Apostle. Somebody else. <laughs> I like what you said, Brother Lonus. And if you like Brother Lonus's comment tonight, you're going to love to hear his teaching next week. Um, now. That, those were good points. The reason you would get exiled is for two things. Normally, they would just execute you uh, if you were saying something against the Roman Empire that they didn't like, that the Roman authorities didn't like. However, they would exile you. That means that they would spare your life, but you would suffer you know, on this little island. <laughs> uh, if you were royalty of some kind or if you were in some kind of priesthood, so that does kind of, you know, he was a elder, not John the elder, but he was an elder because we know that Ephesus was one of the churches that John was the, the pastor at. And so um, it's very possible that, that the theory that John is uh, the apostle and he's writing the, gospel, the book of Revelation, that is a possibility. It's one of the theories, though. <laughs> All right. So let's look at Revelation chapter 1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants what must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now, uh, the very first thing I want to bring up here is that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, some Bibles say that this is a revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, I don't disagree with either of those, because it, it is actually from Jesus, but it's a revelation of him as well. And the book itself is a revelation of Jesus. It's supposed to unveil Jesus to us like, Make him known to us. Make him clearer to us. The irony, though, of using that word apocalypse is that what it's supposed to do in meaning, unveil or reveal, actually, I'm not sure if that actually happens because a lot of people don't understand the book. <laughs> so you see the irony there? The irony is that the book is supposed to reveal although it remains hidden for a lot of people. So part of that is because we read it through other people's eyes. We read a book that says, uh, this is the Antichrist, and this is the Mark of the Beast, and all these things, which, once again, some of those things are very helpful resources for us, but if we only look through that lens, it might obscure our actual understanding of what the book is trying to pull out to us. 
Um, what I'm trying to say is balance. We need to have balance, and we also need to have discernment when we're reading not just the book of Revelation, but any book. So this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So you see how this worked? God gave him, Jesus, the revelation, and the revelation was given to the angel to give to John. Do you see that? The, the angel somehow becomes an intermediary here. He receives the message from God and then gives it to John. And then it's John who bears witness to the word of God. Now, are these not very, going with Brother Lonis's comment, very similar words here to the Gospel of John, who uh, it says that he uh, bore witness to the light, you know, in John chapter, in uh, the, the Gospel of John. And in, in Revelation chapter 2, it says, he bore witness of the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written therein, for the time is near. Here we get um, a bless the in chapter three or in chapter one verse three we get a blessed is the this is the first of seven blesseds in the book, actually, and you can look through them. There's seven of them throughout, scattered throughout the book. This is the first one, and the word blessed is mykairos in the Greek, and it's the same word that Jesus says when he says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. It's the same exact word. This blessing is not just... Um, just like patting you on the head, but it's like all the spiritual blessings of God are upon you. The blessing of uh, grace and peace to those who read the words of this prophecy. Now, notice here it says that my version says read aloud, and I think that's a good translation. Some, some translations just say, blessed are those who read. But the, God, the book itself is to be read aloud. It's to be read in a public place. And this is how they would have done it in the early church. They're, they're what, like everybody here has a copy of this, of this book. During the time of the Revelation, uh, during 90 AD, only one person had a copy, and that had to be copied, and that one had to be copied, and, and then it could be circulated around to everybody. So it had to be read aloud because not everybody had a copy. But there's also something about reading the Bible aloud that scatters the darkness, you know, scatters the demonic, because it's the words of God. They are the words of life, and they are to be read aloud. And it says that they're the words of the prophecy, not just an apocalypse, but a prophecy from God. And blessed are those who hear these words and keep those things which are written therein. It's not only um, important for you to read and to hear what's said, but for you to keep what is said. And that's where I fall short. I can hear it, I can read it, but can I keep it? Um, Jesus, I believe it was, said, If you love me, keep my commandments. 
you know, the word keep also means to hold fast to, um, to be true to my commandments. And the Old Testament is full of those verses that say, be careful to keep everything that I have said to you. And I think sometimes we're careless. I know I could be careless in my Christian walk, but we are to keep what is written therein. Now, let me ask you this. If you don't read the book because you're scared of it, then how are you supposed to keep the things which are written therein? You can't keep the things written therein if you don't read the book. <laughs> Simply read the book. And then it says, for the time is near. So why read the book? The time is near. It's time for you to read the book because the time is near. <laughs> All right, so chapter 1 verse 4 says, John is writing to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before uh, his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. This here is what we call a doxology. A doxology is just a, a word of a blessing or a word of praise. And a lot of times, other liturgical churches like the Episcopal churches, the Catholic churches, a lot of times they will have a doxology, which is a, it's a formalized statement. Um, but here, the doxology is that uh, grace, grace to you and peace from him who was and is to come. This is the doxology, the grace and the peace. And we see that Paul writes grace and peace quite a bit in his letters. It is only that you have peace because you have the grace of God. Otherwise, you don't have peace. You can only have peace because of God's grace. And then... It says here that it, the message is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Now, this is a very important idea in the, in the book of Revelation, the idea of witness. Because time and time again, people are going to be tried for their witness. Now, Jesus is the first one in the book to be called faithful witness. But if you look in chapter 2 um, and in verse 13, it says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even, even in the days of Antipas, my witness. Now, the interesting thing about the word witness in Greek is that it's the word martoro, which is where we get the word martyr. Martyr means, now the, the, uh, sadly the Muslims have taken this word over uh, in their idea of jihad, that they could they can die, they could be a martyr for Allah, and that they can go to paradise and have 72 virgins or whatever. So, but the idea of martoro is a Christian idea, and Jesus himself was the first martoro, the first witness. And testimony is also um, in, that, in that word, to testify or to be a witness. Then we see Antipas in chapter 2, verse 13, who was a faithful witness. And then we also see later on in chapter 11 that there are two witnesses. 
that witness and testify to Jesus Christ. And they are, like Antipas, they are killed in the streets. Um, And just like Antipas and the two witnesses, Jesus was killed on the cross. Um, Not killed, he gave his life, but nevertheless, the, the end result was death. And finally, it says that Jesus is the faithful witness. That means he died on the cross. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now, here's where the Jewishness comes in. Jesus died on Passover. The 14th of Nisan, not not the car. (laughs) But Nisan is the fourth month of the Jewish calendar, which is in the springtime. So Jesus died on 14 Nisan. 15 Nisan was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He was our unleavened bread. He was in the buried tomb. And on first fruits, which was the first day of the week, Sunday, he rose from the dead. This is Jesus himself, whenever it says he's our first fruits, or it says that he's the firstborn from the dead, this is a Jewish idea that God raised him from the dead and that he became the first fruits offering to God. If you're a first of something, what does that mean? There's more to come. (laughs) It says that he was the firstborn from the dead, but there's going to be a secondborn and a thirdborn. And hopefully I'm one of those that would be born again from the dead. Amen? I hope we all are if we know Jesus Christ. And then it says that he he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, we find a lot about the kings of the earth in the book of Revelation. And they, you know, there's the uh, different kings throughout the book. And yet, right in the get-go, right in the first chapter, we learn who the king of kings is, and it's Jesus Christ. He is the ruler of the kings. You might think you're a king, and you might be a king, but there's a ruler above those kings, and it is Jesus Christ. This is also, you have to realize that this was during the time of the Roman Empire, So a lot of this, one theory about the book of Revelation is that it was all um, code uh, to kind of, uh, it was code for, um, you know, it was against the Roman emperor, and they were talking against the Roman emperor throughout the whole book, but they never do mention him for, you know, so they don't get persecuted for that in the book. So that's a very interesting theory you might want to look at. Now, continuing, it says, To him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us, made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we learn here that uh, we are freed from our sins by his blood. This is the way that we come to Christ is, or come to God is through the blood of Christ, and that not only are we made righteous, but we're also made a kingdom of priests to God. God established the Levitical order in the Old Testament. He doesn't mean for the priesthood to go away. The priesthood is still very much here, and it's, for, and it's those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They are made priests to God and, and our Father. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Chapter 1, verse 7 says, Behold, 
He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, and everyone who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will well on account of him. Even so, amen. If you're like me, you're going to be tempted to say that that is a direct quote from the Old Testament, but it's not. <laughs> it is, however, an allusion to Zechariah chapter 12. So if you want to turn to Zechariah, let me see if I can find it in here. Should be the last, next to the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 12 and verse 10. It says, I'll just read the whole verse. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of compassion and supplication, so that when they look on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. I understand that to mean that the Jews, when they see Jesus, they will believe in him. They will believe in him as the Messiah when he returns. And that as Paul says, all Israel will be saved. I believe they will believe in him at that moment when they see him Coming back, they will believe in him. And so back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. This is also an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, if you want to turn there real quick. Daniel chapter 7. And we get another heavenly throne room scene. Daniel chapter 7, let's look at verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and one that was ancient of days took his seat. His raiment was white as snow, and the hair on his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came forth from before him, Thousands and thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. I looked, and then because of the sounds of the great words which the horn was speaking, the horn, and as I looked, the beast was slain, and its body destroyed, and given over, and burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds, here we go, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. To me, it seems like John read that, and then he wrote, <laughs> he wrote the revelation. No, I'm kidding. I, I know that God gave this as a vision, but it's, you see the similarities there, right? You see the similarities between Daniel and um, what's going on here in Revelation. It almost looks like there was, John just read Daniel, and then he, and he wrote the vision down on Revelation, but it's, of course it's not that way. So then... Um, then we get in uh, chapter 1, verse 8. It says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, 
the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So here we learn some biographical information about John, but one of the things I want to highlight is it does say that he was... Um, he was being persecuted. Uh, he shared in the tribulation of the other Christians. And that he's enduring that tribulation patiently. And finally, it says that he was banished to the island of Patmos because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, remember we said that, that witness and testimony were very closely related. And here we see that he was being persecuted for his testimony. How many of us can say that we have been persecuted for, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of us have been persecuted for our testimony? Here we see that John was. And it seems to me that as we go on in these last days, that, that it's, it's more uncomfortable being a Christian now than ever, right? You kind of feel you're a fish out of water. I don't know about you, but I do. I feel like some people tell me what they believe and they think, and I'm, I'm just thinking in my head, are you for real? <laughs> are we on the same planet? I know we're not on the same page, but are we at least on the planet Earth? And unfortunately, that divide is going to get wider between us and the philosophies and the theories of this world. And that's exactly what happened to John. His ideology about Jesus, his understanding and his faith in Jesus was so divergent from the Roman culture that they had to do something with him. They had to put him away. They had to put him into exile. And then finally in chapter, that, that may be the actual finally, <laughs> in chapter 1 verse 10, we get into that first marker that says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. This is a very significant scripture here because the Lord's Day is the first mention of Sunday being the day of worship. Um, there are other references to the Lord's Day in the New Testament, but this is the clearest one that says the Lord's Day. In other words, 90, we're 60 years, when this book was written, we're about 60 years from Jesus, and in that 60 years, we now have a name for the, for the day that we worship Jesus, and that is the Lord's Day. The Lord here is not God, it's Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. And the Lord's Day here is not the Sabbath, it is Sunday. So, so John was in the Spirit on Sunday. This, the, Sunday is the day that Christians would celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Every Sunday would be a resurrection. I think we kind of lost that a little bit in the church. Uh, but every Sunday was considered a, a, you know, that is the time when Christians would uh, worship and would remember the resurrection of Christ. And to be in the Spirit is fascinating because this is the means by which the revelation was given. Now notice... Once again, it's in the book of Revelation, it's very hard to know who's doing what because God's giving the revelation and Jesus is giving the revelation. 
and the Holy Spirit's giving the revelation. <laughs> it's like, it's hard to pinpoint exactly who is saying what and who's doing what, but here it says that it's through the, through the agency of the Spirit that the vision came. And it says that he heard behind him a loud voice like a trumpet, and it said, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw the seven golden lampstands. And that's, that's the menorah. Now, my theory on this is that there were seven of those. I only have one of them, but that he was in the midst of seven of those. So um, the, I don't think the book says that necessarily, but I think you can, you can read that. Um, you can interpret it that way. So it says, when I turned to see the voice, I saw the one speaking to me was in the midst of these seven golden lampstands. Now, this is also an allusion to Zechariah, um, where there are the two olive trees and the olives are being pressed and the golden oil is being funneled into a menorah to light the menorah. And we, we studied that when we were studying Zechariah. Um, so this chapter 12 is an allusion to Zechariah. Verse 13 says, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden girdle around his breast, his head and the hair on his head were white as wool, white as snow, his eyes were like the flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he, had, he held seven stars, from his mouth issued a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Once again, we read the book of Daniel. This sounds almost like what was described when Daniel was describing the Ancient of Days. Not not Jesus, but the Ancient of Days, God himself. Notice John's reaction in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I would call that a slain in the spirit moment. <laughs> you know, growing up in Pentecostal Pentecostalism, I grew up seeing people fall out in the spirit. I'm sure that scares people who are not from the Pentecostal background. And I can understand that. But when the Spirit comes down and He overwhelms you, that's what happens. I fell at His feet, though dead. Now, He may have, felt, he may have fell forward in an act of worship. But He laid His right hand upon me, and He said, Fear not, for I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So we might have thought this was just an angel, actually, at first. I know we all know it's Jesus. But if you only read this for the first time, there's nothing in this that indicates that that's Jesus until he says, I died. <laughs> and when it says, I died, then we know instantly that's Jesus. Just like in Luke chapter 24, the, the guys on the road to Emmaus didn't know that was Jesus at all until he broke the bread. And then they were like, that's Jesus. And he disappeared. So here, we know that Jesus, this is Jesus, because it says, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys 
of Thanatos. I have the keys of death and of Hades, of hell. Now, a key represents authority. That means that you have the authority to unlock a door. Not everybody has those keys. Like, I've got some keys to my office. Only I have those keys. If somebody else had my keys, it's only because I gave them those keys, and that was me giving them authority to go into my office. So these keys, Jesus didn't just ask for them. He took them. (laughs) Imagine that. He took the keys of death and hell, and now he's alive forevermore. Verse 19 says, Now write what you see and what is and what is to take place hereafter. So this is the natural opening of the book. What is or what you see now is the present, and what is is the present. What is to take place hereafter is the future. And then verse 20 says, And um, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, that's Revelation chapter (laughs) 1. So there's a lot there. Um, So, I hope that you've enjoyed tonight's study. Let's have a closing prayer. Are there any final comments before we close? Yeah. Was there not a place in the Old Testament when prophecy was given concerning the end time that it said it would be sealed for that time because people were not supposed to know and understand it until the time came? Yeah, Daniel says, seal up the book, Daniel. Now, the book of Revelation does not say that. Um, God never tells John to seal up the book. There are seals. There are seven of them. The book of Daniel is said to be sealed. Uh, And he says, seal them up uh, until the time of the end, because it's then when they'll be understood. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Any other comments or questions? All right, very good. Well, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Lord, thank you tonight for your blessings, and thank you, Lord, for this time of of worship. Lord, I, I really thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the book of Revelation. And God, we just ask that something that was said tonight will stick with us through the rest of the week. And that we'll be not just the, the readers and the hearers, but we'll also do what you say to do. That we will be faithful witnesses to your word, God. That wherever we're at in the, in the public sphere, that we will be witnesses, martyros for you. Um, and well, Lord, may it be that maybe we'll be counted worthy to receive persecution for your sake. Lord, we do pray for Israel tonight as they have been in in fighting and bombings. God, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the safety of Israel. God, we pray for our nation. We do pray for our president, for the presidency, for our Congress, for our um, judicial system, our Supreme Court. 
God, we just ask that as we live in these last days, that we will be faithful witnesses to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.